0: Hello and welcome to FTI's Investigation Series podcast, The Explosion of Data and What That Means for Investigations, Part 1. My name is Gino Bello and I lead the digital forensics and e-discovery team in Southeast Asia here at FTI Consulting. Throughout this podcast series, FTI experts will discuss the latest issues and trends impacting the world of investigations. And today's conversation is centered around challenging data, how to obtain it, and then how to use it, Today I'm joined by very special guests, Simran Tour from Wong Partnership and my colleagues Brett Klapp and Han La.:
1: Hi, I'm Simran Tour. I'm a partner in the commercial and corporate disputes practice at Wong Partnership, and I'm based in Singapore. I specialize in corporate investigations and white-collar crime matters, and prior to joining Wong Partnership, I was a criminal prosecutor with the Attorney General's Chambers in Singapore.
2: Hi, I'm Brett Clapp, a senior managing director here at FTI Consulting, and I lead the Asia Pacific data and analytics team, also based in Singapore.
3: Hello, my name is Han Lai. Um, I'm the managing director in FTI Consulting. Um, I'm based in Shanghai in China, and I lead
0: the discovery and forensic analysis team here in China. Thanks to my guests for joining me today. Han, I'll come to you first as I wanted to explore. What difficulties have you faced in the collection and analyzing of data over the last 12 to 24 months, and more specifically, the encryption of data and new data sources that you are dealing with? So
3: I think in the past 12 to 14 months that we, we have encountered a, um, a COVID situation, which sort of increased a lot of challenging in terms of collect, on-site collection for the data. Um, specifically, um, why in China, there's a lot of um, data has moved uh, traditionally from the computers to mobile device and also other uh, cloud service as well as chat um, service that was available today. Um, so it's quite challenging that um, because all these data sources are in different locations um, and then they also are different formats. So getting them to be uh, ready for unified review becomes a a serious challenge. Um, On top of that, we also have uh, increasing um, device security, um, which on the mobile phones as well as within the apps, there's there's, uh, access control restrictions, there's um, data privacy concerns, as well as um, encryptions on different applications. So that becomes uh, quite challenging during the
0: discovery process. Thanks, Han. Um, And and further to that, so you mentioned remote collections, which I think everybody is grappling with now. Um, You also touched on new data sources. Can you tell us more about Teams, WeChat, Salesforce, Slack, um, and so on, and I suppose the the sheer volume of data and the desperate data sources that you're having to deal with? Right. So um,
3: these new type of chat apps, they, they have two parts. Um, often they will have a server side of data, which existed on the, um, the service provider or, or within the company servers. Um, the other part we, would be some of the, the information or chats will be available on the device um, and offline. So, so getting both uh, side of data to be collected Uh, and then validate and also sync together, it becomes a challenge. Uh, For instance, um, say slacks they have uh, private channels as well as public channels. And then they also have information on the server as well as on the device. So um, getting all these data together would be a significant challenge. And plus um, all the chats, increasingly because um, everyone has been working remotely. So it increases people talking on the chats rather than on the phones or or in person.
0: So so that's also another challenge. Thanks, Han. And I think um, you alluded to it. Chats are very critical these days in investigations. It really points to what people were thinking and what they intended to say at the time um, some bad things might have happened. So thank you, Han. Uh, Now I'll turn to you, Brett, Um, from your perspective in data analytics, could you talk a little bit about structured data and some of the ways the collection and the analysis of those sources of data have recently progressed in regulatory investigations? Specifically, could you address AI and machine learning and some of its uses you've seen in your investigation?
2: By way of brief background, I think most folks are pretty familiar with unstructured data, which includes emails and chats and other things, other forms of communication uh, that, that Hanum was just discussing. And I think um, many people in the context of investigations are familiar with digging in those to try and find uh, the quote unquote smoking gun. Structured data sets are, are large little transactional data sets uh, that are also very good sources of information. Uh, it could include financial accounting data, or other transactional data, like trading data, or even shipping data. Uh, and these can be um, very useful in the context of investigation. Uh, if you think about how you use email, it's generally used to codify kind of uh, what people are doing or thinking about doing. So that really answers the W questions. Uh, it might tell you who's talking or who's communicating about uh, whatever scheme they're planning, uh, when they were talking, uh, and maybe what they were planning to do. Uh, where the structured data comes in is the H's. It's, it's how things got actually carried out. How, for example, the fraud was perpetrated. How did they book the payments? Um, how big was the transactions? How, how big was the fraud? How big was the scheme? So it gives some context and some scale to kind of how the fraud was acted upon and how it was carried out. Really over time, I I don't think these data sets have changed all that substantially um, in terms of uh, how we capture them or how we work with them. I think enterprises in general um, have more data and more disparate data that doesn't talk to each other. So you have this this giant uh, sea of data that you need to manage your way through, uh, and the volumes have certainly gotten bigger. Um, But the process to collect them and analyze them really hasn't changed. Uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, the whole big data thing was a, was a craze that happened maybe 10 years ago or 12 years ago. So even the scale of the data sizes that we're seeing hasn't really changed. Um, is not really a new phenomenon either. I, I think there's a couple of differences. Uh, one is the computing horsepower that's available. Uh, it's gone up orders of magnitude which means that you, the computer can handle those data sizes and can really be put to work um, to analyze those bigger and more complicated data sets. And the second is really the appetite of the users. Uh, people are more comfortable with, with data analytics as a concept uh, and trying to find insights from data sets and put them to use uh, in the context of investigations. And that's, you mentioned kind of artificial intelligence and machine learning. That's certainly the flavor of the day. Um, and, and quite frankly, will change the way investigations are done. The tools are just too powerful. Um, and the math is just too powerful to help us uh, and guide us through investigations. Um, I, I'm going to steal an analogy from my, um, my, my UK colleague, Nick Horrigan, because I think it's fantastic. Uh, if you think about um, an investigation, it's like being in a dark cave, and trying to look in the cave to figure out where clues are that might help you unwind that investigation or un- unwind the issue at hand. Um, and if you're an experienced investigator, um, you're very good at getting to the bottom of, of these type of issues and, and finding out what happened. Uh, so you have the, the power of your experience and your knowledge and, and all the tools you have, um, which you know are a bright flashlight or a torch if you're a non-American that allows you to really s- s- zoom in on those issues uh, and get to the bottom of the problems and figure out what happened. Uh, The problem is is trying to figure out where to begin your search. Uh, And poking around in that dark cave can be difficult. So approaches like machine learning, where you're using high-powered math uh, to try and go through large data sets and look for insights, can be like a dim light bulb in the middle of the cave. They're not going to show you exactly where the fraud are, but they're going to give you a lay of the land And so you know, you can see around the cave and have some idea of of where things are um, and better focus your your tools and your your abilities like transaction review and interviews and email review and other more traditional data analytics approaches to try and really get to the bottom of that. It just allows you to zoom in or focus in quicker on your investigation. Uh, One quick example um, would be predictive coding related to email and document review. Using the approach, we would look at some documents in the data set and then use advanced mathematics to have the computer identify other documents that follow similar patterns to the ones identified as being interesting, or the hot ones, if you will, or maybe it's the privileged ones that you want to circle out and and keep track of. So that approach has become more widespread, and regulators uh, and courts, including in Singapore, have gotten more comfortable with those approaches.
0: Thank you, Brett. Han, in terms of WeChat and the regulators' expectations and comfort levels around that data, could you explain a bit more? Right. So I think
3: um, in China, WeChat has become the most uh, popular and de facto um, chat app that works within China um, due to government um, um, restrictions as well as um, the the service availability. Um, so WeChat is a personal chat app um, that basically incorporates a lot of other uh, functions or features that allow a user to use throughout their daily lives, as well as payments, calling a cab, um, um, and then also um, sending transfer money in between, because they, they contact persons, as well as chats, and, and they can also send audio chats share pictures, videos, and URL linking and, and other contents and documents. So because it becomes the most popular chat in China and, and practically the only chat app available in China, um a lot of companies have been using uh WeChat even though it's private um chats but they, they've been using for business purpose as well as some of the company um they don't really use uh, they don't really issue device to the employees. So the employee will be using their personal device with personal WeChat accounts, but conducting business com- conversation or business um, related activities. So these will affect the investigation and, and internal uh, matters when they come to collecting these um, chat apps um so the primary source will be coming from these mobile phones so we may need to get um personal consent in order to obtain these chat application um conversation as was um there's although there's a pc version of the wechat that's available for computer to download within windows but these chat app are synced from the device um uh, through cloud to the local computer but they the local copy of chat has been encrypted, and we saw authentications through the wechat mobile device primary account it will it will remain encrypted um, and as inaccessible so so for, from an investigative perspective um getting these chats on the mobile phone will become the primary concerns and and the primary source so that so we, we often will have to work with um, custodian and also the company and legal counsels to to get around and then to obtain these chats, apps, and
0: and conversations. Thank you, Han. Um, Simran, I'll just turn to you. So FTI has spoken about the practical issues of collecting and analysing data, um, recently progressing in regulatory investigations. Could you tell us um, some of the challenges you have faced in investigation processes recently?
1: Well, the pandemic brought about many challenges for all of us, but from the legal investigations perspective, Uh, one of the main challenges we faced over the last year or so was the shift to working from home as the default arrangement. So overall, I'd say working from home brought about three new issues or challenges for lawyers to to think about. First, uh, there was the general challenge of ensuring that employees stored their data properly and securely on a daily basis and that in this specific event of an internal investigation or if that employee left the company, They would return their devices and data in a manner that didn't compromise confidentiality or allow for data loss. Um, To address this, many companies started building such obligations into their employment contracts and their workplace policies. Now, the second issue we had to deal with was more of a logistical one. Working from home affected the usual internal investigation process, uh, including how we collected data for review and how we conducted witness interviews. Uh, we had to develop methods to do all of this remotely, and all the time uh, was trying not to compromise confidentiality and uh, legal privilege. Uh, the third issue we had to think about doing work from home was a slightly more theoretical one, but nevertheless necessary from a legal risk perspective. Companies had to relook at their crisis management and their privilege management protocols to see if they needed updating, given the change in workplace dynamics. For example, in the event of a dawn raid during work from home, a company under investigation would now face a search not only at its office premises, but possibly also at the homes of several key employees. So if this were to happen, the company would need to be prepared to immediately mobilize and coordinate all the seizures simultaneously and keep track of all the seized in several locations and be ready to assert privilege where necessary. So obviously a plan uh, was required.
0: Thank you, Simran. Um, So once the usually copious amounts of data has been collected then what are the challenges in terms of your legal preparation
1: work? Well, in most internal investigations, the document review process uh, takes up the largest amount of time and resources. Uh, But thankfully for us, most documents are now in electronic format, so our reviews are usually done via e-discovery platforms rather than having to trawl through hundreds of dusty boxes. Um, But Still, in many cases, we are looking at thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of documents. So it's really important for us to carefully plan how we approach each review, and I think Brett talked about this a bit, so that we're not going to go through document after document with no direction at all, and we can get straight to Brett's smoking gun, uh, if there even is one. So the challenge, if you want to call it that, is to think of all the search terms we need to enter into our e-discovery platform so that the right documents come up and so that we can meet the needs of the legal review. For example, if you think you may want to prove conspiracy legally, you have to factor in searches for communications between the parties you think may be involved in the the conspiracy in order to try and prove it. So at the very basic level, we need to be clear on all the key transactions or persons involved and all the relevant time periods, and that will be the foundation of your search term list. But of course, this needs to be refined further Uh, based on a working analysis of all the possible pain points which must be investigated in a a legal case. So let's say our case concerns a corrupt payment by one company to another. Here, we would usually include in the search terms anyone within the company who may have been in the approving line for the transaction. Uh, And on the finance side, anyone who may have reviewed or approved the corrupt payment. So this may go all the way up to the board in some cases. In fact, document review is usually an ongoing process throughout the investigation. So in order to get a complete picture, you must keep doing updated searches as the investigation progresses and you gain more and more information uh, from documents and witnesses on what might be relevant. So this is also where uh, AI or machine learning can be helpful to us lawyers. The idea being that it might actually identify search terms or documents that we don't even know that we need as yet. Uh, As a separate point, if there is a need to review the data which has been collected for legal privilege, for example, if disclosure to the authorities or court proceedings are expected, then that adds another layer of complexity to the review. Many discovery platforms have a privilege review function, which certainly helps. But given the nuances in the law around this area and how it differs from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, we still have to fall back on manual checks over the documents in order to decide whether each one is privileged or not under the law of each applicable jurisdiction which may be involved in the investigation.
0: Thank you, Simran. Um, Finally, what's your experience in the courts in terms of how have they approached the masses of data as evidence?
1: Well, all the litigation lawyers tuning in will know that whilst your trial bundles can reach tens of thousands of pages, every case turns on a much more focused set of core documents. So these will be usually the best or worst of the documents for each side and other ones referred to most frequently by the parties at the trial. In other words, these are the documents that the parties themselves are asking the court to focus on for most of the time. So questions started arising as to whether we really need to disclose every single non-call document in a case, simply because it's relevant, and whether there is a more cost-effective yet fair way for parties to have their case decided. So the Ministry of Law in Singapore looked at this and recently announced as part of a broad overhaul of our civil procedure rules that the rules on discovery will be changed by the end of this year to be much more focused and less document heavy. Now, only documents that you're relying on and documents adverse to you need to be disclosed. So this is a welcome change at the very least. We'll spend far less time and cost reviewing the documents that are disclosed to us by the other side in litigation because we should theoretically receive only a fraction of what we used to.
0: And do you think this change will impact the data gathering and review process at the discovery stage? For example, do we we now need to do less searches and enter less search terms?
1: Well, in my view, things shouldn't change here. We still need to conduct a thorough review to properly assess the issues. Uh, This will then allow us to decide what the best or worst documents are for our case, which we will then need to disclose.
0: Thank you, Simran. I'd like to thank my guests, Simran, Brett, and Han, for joining me today an interesting and insightful discussion on the challenges and solutions for the explosion of data. Please remember to hit that like button and subscribe to our podcast so that you don't miss out on future episodes. And if you'd like to find out more about what we do here at FTI Consulting, and indeed what Simran does at Wong Partnership, and how we can help build a resilient future for our clients, please reach out to myself or any of today's guests via the FTI website.